Our text this morning comes from Psalm 3, verse 5. And we're going to, as background to that, read the second, second book of Samuel, chapter 15, the verses 1 through 26, as well as Psalm 3. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but... There is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as he hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Carathites, and all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But it I answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, 
whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until all the people had, until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. So far. Now we turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm 3. Psalm 3, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But to you, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And our text is verse 5, I lay down and slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the fundamental questions in every believer's life is the question, how well do the things that I believe stand up to life in the real world? How well does my faith stand up to the pressures of family conflict, a difficult workplace, or other kinds of upheaval? The last time we read a psalm together, it was Psalm 2. The psalm zooms out, so to speak, and it gives us a divine perspective. You see how earthly, earth and earthly rulers stand in relation to heaven. You see how small they really are compared to God. You see that the ultimate ruler of them all is God himself. And when you read Psalm 2, that really changes your perspective. 
You walk away from the psalm with a real sense of confidence. But then you get to Psalm 3, and right away that sense of confidence is challenged. Whatever lofty thoughts you may have had before, Psalm 3 puts us right back into the middle of life, into the middle of conflict. And it's not even just natural, national conflict. It is family conflict. That presents a real challenge. What difference does your faith make if it can't even see you something through something as basic as family conflict? You might read Psalm 3 and think, well, where are God's promises now? Or you might look at your own life and think, how can we live out our faith if we already fail in this most elementary of all relationships? And those questions all feed into how you read Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is a psalm of David. The um, heading connects it to a time when he fled from Absalom, his son, these headings are, are very old. There's no reason to, to think that, that that doesn't describe what the psalm is about. So, it is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. But we are not David. We should not read the psalm as if we are David. David's experience is not ours. But David's faith is the point of this passage, the point of the whole Bible, is not to be like David, but not to be like any of these other biblical figures, but to see what they saw. David saw that God is a God who delivers. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is the same salvation that we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is our King. And because Christ is our King, we are sustained as David was. That's also going to be our approach to this psalm this, this morning. Because Christ is our King, we are sustained as David was. Therefore, our faith is not sustained by our circumstances. Rather, our faith is sustained by God's promises. So the superscription, the title of this psalm, connects it to the time that David fled from Absalom, his son, and that makes the pain in this psalm something very personal. It's not just political difficulties. It is family conflict that happens to take place on a national stage. It involved a, a lot of suffering and eventually even a civil war. You read the psalm and you think, how did things get to this point? Well, conflict rarely appears in a vacuum. There are always events leading up to it. And it pays to think about those events for a few moments. They're described in 2 Samuel 11 through 14. Chapter 11 describes how David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then arranged to have her husband Uriah killed on the battlefield. A very sordid story. David at his, his lowest point. Adultery, murder, a cover-up. But the Lord knew. The Lord confronted him through the prophet Nathan, and the Lord promised him, the sword will never depart from your household. Evil would be raised up against him from within his own family. The Lord did forgive David right away, but forgiveness did not exempt him from the consequences of his sin. 
God always keeps his promises. And we, we look at that from, often from um, the positive side, the, the bright side of the covenant promises, but, but it applies to all of God's promises, including that sin comes with consequences, including this situation. David and us stand or fall by God's word. So the events that, that followed were not random, and the situation leading up to Psalm 3, the situation in which David finds himself is not random. You can be certain that God keeps his word. But that is also a source of great comfort to us and security. And that sense of security is what shines through in Psalm 3. David knows the Lord keeps his word. No matter what we do, God has promised consequences to sin, but God had also promised to David, your throne will be established forever. And he did not take that back. That promise was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You can count on God to keep his promises. So the troubles in David's house began soon afterward when Amnon, his oldest son, violated his half-sister Tamar. David was very angry about this when he heard, but he did not actually act on any of it. And that's puzzling. Why did he not do that? Did he feel that he had lost moral authority in his family? Was he seeing his personal sins displayed, played out on the family stage, and he, he felt that he, he couldn't intervene because of that? That doesn't really make sense either, and, and in the end, it's a bit of a mystery. Why did David not act? Scripture doesn't tell us. It simply portrays David's paralysis, so to speak, after this. And after two years of waiting, Absalom takes matters into his own hands and arranges for Amnon to be murdered. Then he goes into exile. Eventually, David and Absalom are reconciled, sort of, and then he goes back to Jerusalem, Absalom does. But Jerusalem is the capital city, and while he is there, Absalom takes the opportunity, he misuses the opportunity to, to turn the hearts of the people against David. His behavior becomes really bizarre, he takes on the behavior of a king, and, and this man is a born politician. You have to hand it to him. He stands in the city gate early in the morning. He tells people what they want to hear. He, he minimizes the, the difference between himself as a prince and the common people. He, he portrays himself as someone who would bring true justice and declares, interesting, he declares everybody who comes to him is in the right. If you read that in the chapter and you paid attention, he doesn't even listen to them to spell out their case. He simply says to them, oh, you know, you're in the right. Too bad I can't do anything about it unless I was king. And eventually he rises up and takes these people with him. But you have to understand, this is betrayal on many levels. This is not just a betrayal of his father. This is a betrayal of his father in the office of king. It is a betrayal of... God, who made his father king. So this is rejection on all fronts. It's a heinous sin. And yet again, it's, it's interesting how accepting David is. First, he studiously ignores what is happening. He ignores all of the clues that indicate that something is going, something is going on, something is off with Absalom. Would you not think something was off if, if you were a king and you have a son who carries on like this? Hires 50 men to run ahead of him. 
creates a crowd wherever he goes. He's ignored all of that. He ignores all the clues that point to the rebellion about to take place. But, but when it finally takes place, he, he's surprisingly accepting about it all. He experiences this as the judgment of God over him, and he bows himself under that. That's reflected in verse 19 of our reading when he refers to Absalom as king. That shows he holds the kingship loosely. He understands the kingship has been given to him by God, and it's not his inherently. It's an office that God can give to him and take away again. And he does not even take the ark of God along, even though this ark represents the personal presence of God among his people. He doesn't try to, to manipulate the situation. He says in verse 25, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. Very different story from when Eli, the priest, and the elders, when the elders of Israel during the time of Eli, the priest, decided to take the ark into battle because they wanted to force God to be with them. This is very different. So the purpose of Scripture is to point us to Christ. Jesus said, these are the Scriptures that testify about me. The purpose of Scripture is not to provide us with a moral example, but at the same time, as it points us to Christ, it also is intended to to guide us along the way, and so it is not wrong to to look at uh, how David, as a believer, acted in a particular situation and to draw conclusions from that. So what can we learn from David here? Well, we can learn from his submissive attitude, an attitude reflected in the psalm as well. He experiences, in any case, this um, situation with Absalom. He experiences that as the Lord's discipline in his life. And he doesn't fight that. He submits to the consequences of sin of his sin that the Lord visits upon him. He trusts that in time the Lord will restore him. He's not passive, but he's not bitter either. He lives up to his responsibility in the moment as best as he can, and the rest he leaves up to God. The attitude is instructive for us as well when we deal with difficulties in our own lives that can be traced back to our own sins. Sometimes we can become bitter about the consequences of our sins. Maybe we're dealing with a disrupted relationship, for example. It doesn't seem to be going back to normal very quickly. Maybe it never will go back to normal again. Don't become fixated on that. This passage is encouraging us not to become fixated on that. Instead, be grateful if God has spared you the most severe consequences of your sin Be submissive for the consequences that he visits upon you and and work with what the Lord is doing in this situation. Having said that, the situation is still very discouraging. It's not just political for David. It is personal. It is a matter of faith. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many are they who rise up against me? So discouraging. And these are his own people. They're not just rejecting their king. They're making this personal. They're talking to David, the person. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. In other words, we know what's going on. And God has given up on you. 
So David observes his circumstances. He observes these people. He listens to the things that they say, but he does not further interact with any of it, which is also wise. What makes faith faith is not that it is defined by circumstances. And that's really the only question, the only answer you can ever give to the question, is my faith enough for these circumstances? Circumstances are significant. Circumstances are not downplayed in this psalm. But the circumstances are not central either. Only God's word is central. Circumstances are significant, but they do not determine the truth of what God says. When circumstances go well, that is not our primary reason for believing. When circumstances do not go well, it is not our primary, it is not a reason for us to stop believing. So David states these facts. He says, how many are my foes? How many are, many are rising against me? Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Those are all facts, but the greatest fact of all, same fact as you find back in Psalm 2, is that God answers. Which fact weighs the heaviest in your life? We've heard lots of facts these last few years, haven't we? We've heard lots about fact-checking. Sometimes there are so many facts you just get lost in them. Don't even know what, what, what's a real fact, what is not, what am I supposed to believe? Can I even understand how to interpret any of these facts? How do you know that a fact is a fact? You get lost in this whole maze of facts. Which fact weighs the heaviest? Well, this psalm says a fact that weighs the heaviest is that God answers. God answers his people. That's central to the psalm. God has promised he will never leave his people. That was already the case in the Old Testament. This has always been the case. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6, Moses says to the people, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Matthew 28 verse 19, the Lord Jesus makes a similar promise to his disciples And by proxy to us all, when he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Hebrews 13, the writer reminds us that God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He continues, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the the exceedingly great reality that the Bible puts forward, that it says that you are never alone. No matter where you go, no matter where you are, you are never alone as a believer. It's one of the most awe-inspiring thoughts that you can have in your mind to really wrap your head around. God promises to be with his people. God has never revoked that promise. See, fear focuses only on the circumstances. And maybe we've been guilty of that sometimes in the last few years in the discussions that we've had surrounding all the different social and political events that have transpired. But so much of it has been about what is going on. Fear can very easy, be very easy to be driven by fear. Fear, by its very nature, focuses only on the circumstances. Faith acknowledges the circumstances, but it doesn't fixate on them. It, it looks beyond that to God's promises. But here's the, the rub. How do, you, how do you get to that point? 
How do you make the switch from fear to faith? It doesn't come naturally. That's not something that we're wired to do. So how, how do you get to this point? You need to learn it. How do you learn it? By going through situations that inspire fear. You learn it by being in situations, by being put in situations where this faith is tested. Nobody's born with, with the ability to, to express something like Psalm 3. This is something that you learn. You learn it through suffering. That's how David learned it as well. So if you're in this situation and, and you're in a situation that tests you and you're struggling and you feel like your faith is inadequate, don't, don't focus on that. That is not the point. Don't compound your struggle with guilt. That's not helpful. Instead, the purpose of this is to more and more cause us to look to God's promises. And, and, and the, the reason why we do that is because on our own, we are inadequate. God's basic promise, he will always be with us. The very name of Jesus himself, Emmanuel, God with us. And that one promise works itself out in a constellation of other promises, related promises. He promises that through faith, you really are a member of Christ. You really are cleansed of all your sins through the blood of Christ. You are fully accepted in Christ. You fully belong to Christ. You are a part of the people of Christ. And all of these things are promised to you in your baptism and confirmed to you in your baptism. So that when you doubt, you think back to that and you say, God made this promise to me. You may not always consider your baptism as a, as a source of encouragement. But it can be if you understand it properly, if you use it properly, if you work with it properly. So the reality of the life of a child of God is that God will always hear you whether you feel that in the moment or not. And often you won't. Often you walk in the dark, so to speak. But the path of the righteous is like the first light of dawn, remember? You go on on the power of the promises till, till you come to the end of a dark time, maybe a very long dark time. You look back on it and then often things make sense later on. And even if they don't, you're still called to continue on the power of God's promises. But it's hard, isn't it? Ultimately, the greatest conflict is not even these circumstances. The greatest conflict is in the mind, the fight against fear, discouragement, sadness. Prayer is the antidote to fear. That's what the psalm is as well. The psalm is a prayer. The first three verses are a prayer. And prayer is a, a, an act of raw faith. Sometimes people think that prayer has failed if you don't feel some sort of a, a spiritual connection with God. But that word feel is a dangerous word. The fact is, even if you don't feel a connection, prayer is an act of faith in the face of unbelief. Prayer is coming to God in the power of the promises that he made and laying your heart before him. Prayer is your lifeline to God and prayer you're encouraged and built up, especially when you pray together. 
Sometimes our mind is no scram- so scrambled that you don't have the energy or the ability or the capacity to formulate the right words. And that's when you need to ask people to pray with you. We don't do that enough. Do we? How often have you asked your friends, not an office bearer, although you should ask them as well, but how often have you asked your personal friends, look, I'm struggling, can, you just, can we just pray? How often have you offered to your friends to say, look, we've talked about all of this stuff. You're struggling. Can we pray about it? Why wouldn't we? What, what are we afraid of, that they'll say no? People never say no to prayer. It's so encouraging. And that's why this is an important part of the ministry of these office bearers who work among you as well. Prayer is a part of their ministry. You know, we're at the beginning of a new year, new season, new set of home visits. Ask them to pray for you. They can come and pray with you and for you when you don't have the energy and the ability to do it yourself. It's so encouraging to have someone come and pray and intercede on your behalf. So encouraging when someone can remind you of God's promises Because that's how our faith is sustained, ultimately, by those promises. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts and causes us to look to these promises. And these promises are what encourages us. These promises are what we hold on to. Because Christ is our King, our faith is sustained by God's promises. That's our second point. David's faith was sustained by God's promises as well. Personally but also in his capacity as an office bearer. What promise did he have? Well, remember, we, over, over the new year, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, we spent this time looking at Psalm 2, remember? And that, that line, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and it is this declaration of God serving notice to the world that is in rebellion and the aftershock of this Astounding declaration still rumbles through Psalm 3, through the whole Psalter, in fact, through the whole Bible, until the ground shakes with his coming in in Revelation. So Absalom's rebellion is not just a personal vendetta against his father. It is not evidence merely of a failed personal relationship. It's a rejection of God's promises. There was only one legitimate king, That was David himself in that moment. God had promised to establish his throne forever. David was confident it would somehow all work out, even if he couldn't quite see how. And this is why he is able to lie down and sleep. He knew that God's promises didn't depend on him. God's promises to David are part of something much bigger than just this situation. It was part of bringing Jesus into the world. The ultimate king was not David. The ultimate king is Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. Christ, who is still king today. Remember what we confess in Belgian Confession, Article 27. Christ is an eternal king who cannot be without subjects. Remember those words and meditate on them. Christ is an eternal king who cannot be without subjects. God has his people. God will preserve them. That promise sustained David 
David knew he was part of God's people. David knew that God would bring salvation to his people. David was confident that the Lord would deliver him one way or the other. Might not know how, but it will work out. And we can share in that same confidence because Christ is our king. Our faith is sustained by the same promises. So what is confidence? Confidence does not mean that you become passive. David does not remain in the city. He has God's promises, but he still needs to flee for his life in this situation. So what he does is he lives up to his responsibility as best as he can. Then he leaves the rest up to God. This is not his first time being on the run. He's had to deal with so many other things in the past. Why, why would this be any different? And is that not true of your life as well, dear brothers and sisters? Has God not cared for you every other day of your life? Why would tomorrow be any different? You've experienced God's providence so many times in the past. Doesn't that count for something? Doesn't he deserve your trust by now? How do we know that David is confident? Because he lay down and slept. May not seem like a logical thing to do under the circumstances. But you know, you know what? Believe it or not, sometimes going to sleep is the most spiritual thing you can do. Sounds funny, doesn't it? But it's true. We're, we're always so busy doing all this stuff. We do all these things. We live in a culture that, that prizes busyness. It prizes taking control. In a culture like that, going to sleep is a subversive act. Going to sleep is a form of, of letting go a statement of absolute trust in God because Christ is our king we are sustained as David was our faith is not sustained by our circumstances our faith is sustained by God's promises so we can sleep how do we know that God keeps his promises how does David know that God keeps his promises because he woke again for the Lord sustained him you think about that we are sinners from conception to the moment of death. We are never separate from our sins. And yet, every morning God sustains us. The fact that we wake up every morning is an act of God's grace. It's his providence in our lives given to us because of Jesus Christ. Think about what we confess in Lord's Day 10. The eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God, and my Father. Providence, God's providence, what is providence? His almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules and governs them that all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. He upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, including you. It was God's mercy and grace that, that you woke up this morning. God's mercy and grace that you are taking your next breath. You live. This is not a marvelous 
fact that you wake up every morning. And every morning you get given a new day. Don't you just ever wonder about that? Or are you so wrapped up in the busyness or maybe the ordinariness of life that you never marvel at God's grace that you exist? You live. And even when you die, you will still live in the fullest sense of the word. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live life in the fullest sense of the word, life in communion with God, life with the Father, sustained by the Son, through the Holy Spirit. Life, life that God promises and extends and bestows to all who believe in him. The promise of forgiveness and reconciliation with him, the, the ultimate, ultimate life that you can have, life in communion with God. And that forgiveness and reconciliation is the only basis for David's confidence, the only basis for David's rule, the only basis that we have for forgiveness as well. The forgiveness that God gives to us in Jesus Christ. You see, just like David, Jesus was also rejected by his own people. He was humiliated. He was struck. God answered David from his holy hill, from Zion. But Jesus was taken outside of the city, crucified on the other holy hill. Golgotha, Calvary. And no one answered him. He bowed himself under God's judgment over sin, not his sins, but ours. He was a substitute. And when we put our faith, our trust in him, we can be assured that we belong to God's people. He said of himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So yes, like it says at the end of the psalm, Salvation belongs to the Lord, verse 8. And the New Testament picks up that song. Acts 4, verse 12, salvation is in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other place where you will find it. You need Christ. You need Christ. And when you have him, you have the blessing that our song calls for as well. To have God's blessing means that his favor rests upon you. No matter what your past disappointments, your past failures, your past sins might have been. And that means you can't be confident in any situation. Because, brothers and sisters, if God has delivered you from your sin, he can deliver you from anything. If we don't understand that, if that doesn't fill us with confidence, it's either because we have not understood what sin actually is or we have not understood deliverance. And that's why we need to keep on going back to theology. That's why we need to be here every week because it takes time to work this out. It takes a lifetime to really grasp on a deeper and deeper level what it means to be delivered, what it means to have this king. In fact, one lifetime alone is not enough, and this is why the Lord gives us eternity. He upholds his promises. 
He may not always prevent discouragement or hardship in this life, but he always upholds his promises. Hold on to that when you have periods of anxiety even or depression. You can feel like such a failure when mentally you can't hold it together. But that's, that's not helpful. Don't think of it like that. That's not evidence of failure. It's coming to a point where you recognize your own weakness and being given the opportunity to build faith, if you work with it. It's an opportunity to be reminded again and again that you have a king who sustains us. God has invested everything in this king. Remember, Christ is the king who is not, cannot be without subjects. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation in its fullest form. Not just deliverance from sin, but one day deliverance from the consequences of sin. All the consequences of sin. All the brokenness of sin. All the hardship that sin causes. All the difficulties of life. Delivered from it all. That's God's ultimate promise as well. So whatever situation you're in right now, you should be encouraged. You're being sustained. God is going somewhere with this. It is not failure to have to look to the Lord because you have nothing else left. That's not failure. That's what the Christian life is about. That's what David did as well. The psalm does not teach us to be like David, but it does teach us to look to the same God to whom David looked. And when we do, we will find he is just as faithful. Amen.